This morning, as you see, we're going to be talking about, from Psalms 51, about David's true confessions. But before doing that, I think we need to go to the narrative in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 and read the account there. Because that way we can get a really good glimpse of why David wrote Psalm 51. I know it's going to take a little more time, probably 10 or 12 minutes, but uh, I believe it's important to do so. So if you could go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 2 Samuel. <laughs> so we'll begin reading at, reading at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem, and that was very unusual. Normally the kings would go out to battle with their men, but David remained. Mark that down. And it happened one late, late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And you might wonder, what in the world was David doing up on top of his roof? Well, back in those days, the palaces had uh, balconies up on the roof, maybe the second, third stories, and they had these big balconies that were flat. If you go to Florida today, there's many houses that are like that. They have these, these flat balconies. You can go up and stand around and whatever, maybe relax, and maybe the breeze is blowing. But anyway, David was up there on his roof, and he was walking around. Uh, it shows me that he probably had a little idle time, which is a little dangerous. And, uh, and it says that he saw from the roof, there was a courtyard down below, and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. Well, and David goofed. He, <laughs> and he said the woman was very beautiful. Uh, it shows me that David didn't just look down there and see the woman taking a bath, but he probably looked two or three or four or five times. Because the reason we know this, it says that David sent and inquired about her, about this woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? <laughs> so David should have known that, hey, she's a married woman. Better not go there. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him. You might wonder, why did she come to him so quickly when she was a married woman? Well, one thing is David was king over all Israel. He had a lot of clout. And so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. And then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now David was in a real dilemma. She was pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. He had to try to uh, ponder up some kind of a scheme that he was going to work on. And he said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, David asked uh, how Joab was doing, how the people were doing, and how the war was going. He kind of, you know, just kind of diplomatically 
eased into the conversation, I think. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. That's kind of an odd saying, go down and wash your feet. Well, we know at the end of the, of the day, uh, they would go and they would, everybody, because they wore sandals or barefoot and their feet got dirty, and so they would go down at the end of the day and wash their feet before they're going to bed. But what David was meaning here, he was telling Uriah, Uriah, you go down. It's been a long while. You've been out to battle. You go down and you have sexual relations with your wife. That's what he was saying. Go wash your feet. I don't know how they got that, but anyway. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. So David sent a present. I don't know whether he sent him some E&J brandy, apricot brandy, or what he, you know, to help their evening or what. But anyway, and Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. He didn't do it. Didn't work. When they told David that Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? What's the matter with you, man? Are you crazy? You got a beautiful wife there at home? And you didn't go down and lie with her? What's the matter with you? And Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also. He had to cook up another scheme. And tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and he ate in his presence and he drank so that he made him drunk. He thought, well, I'll just get him drunk. That'll work. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. This thing really wasn't working. He couldn't get him to go lay with his wife so that... Uriah would realize that this pregnancy was his. And finally in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it to the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. And Uriah the Hittite also died. And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises and if he says to you, Why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you know not? Did you know that... They would shoot from the wall. Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? And not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us. He told him the story. How, uh, he 
against us in the field, but when you drove them back to the entrance of the gate. And then the archers shot at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. <laughs> ah, that's funny. I, so he's just saying, yeah, it's no big deal. Uh, don't let it worry you. For the sword devours one and then another. So just go strengthen your attack and overthrow it and encourage him. <laughs> when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent, brought her to his house. She became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Don't ever forget that. Sin is costly. Now we're going to read verse 12, and Nathan rebukes David, shows God's sovereignty here to me. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city. The one was rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against this man, and he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this thing deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. David still didn't get it, did he? And Nathan said to David, I believe he looked him right in the eye, and he says, David, you are the man. You're the man. And thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and, you gave, and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in your sight, in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Amorites. Ammonites, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. He committed adultery and murder. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun, for you did it in secret. But I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child he is born to you shall die. Consequence for David's sin. Always consequence. And now it brings us to our message, Psalm 51. Now that we have that narrative before us. 
we can see why David wrote this little psalm. It was David's shattered life, realizing that it needed to be restored. As a way of introduction, we realize there was a college freshman that went to the dorm laundry room with his dirty clothes all wrapped up in a tight little bundle. Embarrassed by how dirty his clothes were, he never opened the bundle, but just pushed the dirty clothes into the washing machine and turned it on. When the washer stopped, he pushed the tight little bundle of dirty clothes into the dryer, turned it on. Finally, he took the still unopened bundle of clothes to his room. He opened the bundle, and what did he find? To his discovery, they were wet, then dry, but not clean. There's a moral to this little story. For every one of you and I in our Christian lives, God says, don't keep your sins in a tight little bundle. Bring them out into the open one by one and confess them so that they may be cleansed. Confession of our sins to God is essential for each one of us. We might ask the question, what is confession? The word confession in the Greek actually means to say the same thing, to agree with. Confession then is agreeing with God about our sins. It, is, it also involves repentance. And repentance is a turning away from, a 360, if you will, from our sin. No longer embracing it. Psalm 51 is probably one of the most graphic pictures of our confession of sin in the whole Word of God, in the entire Bible. This psalm contains David's humble prayer for forgiveness as he sought cleansing from God after a massive and moral breakdown in David's life. And you, we just read about this in in Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, which was followed by the sin of murder against her husband Uriah, we saw in chapter 11. And then in chapter 12, God directed the prophet Nathan to confront David of his sin. Only then was David willing or quick to repent, to turn away from it. This psalm shows David's confession of sin and emphasizes the importance of true repentance before God. It provides insight into the nature of genuine confession or confrontation of sin in a believer's life. When we as Christians sin, we must confess our sins immediately. Bring them Immediately to God with a contrite heart, a pure heart. Only then can we enjoy the forgiveness of God which leads to a restored walk with the Lord. As we look at a close study of this little psalm, it reveals six characteristics of genuine 
repentance. Six characteristics, and we'll go through these here in these 19 verses. But before we continue, I'd like to just come before the Lord in a quick word of prayer. Father, open our eyes, Father. Open our hearts that we might see from the inside out. Oh, Father, help us to hold a mirror to our hearts that if there's any sin, oh, Father, any transgressions, help us to confess them before you that we might be cleansed that we might be restored, that we might walk in holiness. Oh, Father, strengthen me this morning as we speak. Guide my lips, guide my tongue. Help us so we might glorify you and open each heart to this word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll start with a quote. A Christian must never leave off repenting, for I fear he never leaves off sinning. Charles H. Spurgeon, and how true that is. We're always sin in our lives, isn't it? We never live off repenting. In these 19 verses, we see that David uses the pronoun I, me, or my, I found 36 times, if I counted correctly. 36 times. He was speaking of himself. And here we see that David was the king of all Israel. And not only that, he was a man after God's own heart. Acts 13.23 tells us this. And yet, he fell into sin. First of all, the first characteristic that we will find, we'll see in verses 1 and 2. And it is a cry for forgiveness. A cry for forgiveness. In 1a, David says, we'll read this, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David understood that forgiveness with God was based solely on divine mercy. He understood that. An unfailing love and a wealth of compassion. David's opening appeal was what? He says, have mercy on me, O God. Was a request not for what he deserved, which was death, or painful discipline, but for what he desperately needed, divine grace. He should have gotten death, but he got grace. David was aware of his need to have God's mercy according to his unfailing love and great compassion. David appealed to God to act in accordance with his loving nature. David knew that God was a God of love. He knew that he had unfailing love. He had abundant mercy. David knew that, and so he says, Have mercy on me, O God. Have you ever felt like that? Have you ever come before God and just 
poured out your heart, oh God, have mercy on me. I have. There's been times in my life where I've had to just fall down before God and say, oh Lord, I'm a sinner. I need you. Please forgive me. Have mercy on me, oh God. And he did. And he does. And in verse 1b and 2, we find that he says, blot out and wash me and cleanse me. Here we see an appeal for forgiveness pictured in three different ways. First, the phrase, blot out my transgressions, means to wipe away, to remove David's sinful acts of rebellion and willful sin. That's what he prayed for. As if David's sin were actually written by God in a book, he pleaded that his acts of sinful rebellion would be removed from record. And we see this in Numbers 5.23. Second, he compared himself to a foul garment stained with filth. David prayed, wash away my iniquity as a person would wash dirty clothes. Completely wash me, clean me up. And third, he begged, cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me. Make me totally clean, God. This threefold request expressed David's desire for complete forgiveness. Complete forgiveness. That's what he needed. Number two, in verses three through six, we see David's confession of sin. He says, For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother Conceive me. And behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Here we see that David confesses the awfulness of his sin, and he acknowledges that he understands the seriousness of his wrongdoing. And in verse 3, he said, My sin is ever before me. Painfully aware of his sin, David acknowledged, he says, I know my transgressions. His conscience pressed guilt from his sin to his mind so much so that his sin was always before him, he says. It was always before him, haunting his mind. I believe 24 hours a day, that's all David could think about. Sin was on his heart. Remember, he was like this for almost a year, living in this sin, not confessing it to God. It just haunted him. It haunted him so bad that he ached. 
Verse 4, he said, my sin is against God. David knew his sin was against God. Not just others, including Bathsheba, which it was, and Uriah and the nation of Israel. He confessed against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. David's sin was treason against God since he had done what was evil in God's sight. David fully owned his own sin, didn't he? Yes, fully owning his sin, he realized that this wasn't an accident. This was an atrocity. This wasn't weakness. This was wickedness. And he accepted God's verdict, admitting that God was proved right when he spoke against David's sin and justified when he judged him. There was no alibis. There was no blame here. David offered no lame excuses before God. He knew he sinned. Only a full confession of his own guilt that deserved divine justice. He knew he deserved death, or at least severe discipline and punishment, but God gave him mercy and grace. What a wonderful God. And in verse 5 and 6, he said, My sin is within me. Looking deeper into the source of this matter, David stated that his problem was a corrupt heart. He said, surely I was sinful at birth. He entered this world a sinner in nature long before he became a sinner in action. In fact, conception happened before his birth, beginning nine months earlier when he was conceived in his mother's womb. It was at conception that you and I, that Adam's sin, nature, was transmitted to him and to you and I. We was born depraved. The problem of what David did was sin, arose from what David was, a sinner. He was a sinner. And you and I was born into sin. What does Romans 3, verses 10 and 11 say? There is none righteous, no, not one. There's not even one that seeks after God, no one. And Romans 3, 23 says all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. All, not some, not most, but all. Every one of us have sinned. Come short of the glory of God. Verse 6, David knew. He fell short of God's desire for his life. He said, surely you desire truth in the inward parts. It shows that David had been living a lie before God by attempting to cover up his sins. But then he said, you teach me wisdom, God. Yes, teach me wisdom, you do. Wisdom should cause us to act honestly and open 
before God with our sins that are against him. Only a fool would try to hide his sin from God. Psalm 139, we'll go to just very quickly and read a few verses. And he says in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. No matter where we go, we can't hide from God. This was a tragic game that David was playing for almost a year. Don't play hide-and-seek with God because he'll always find you. Always. Number three, we see a call for cleansing. Verses 13, or 7 through 9, I'm sorry, 7 through 9. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Here David says in verse 7, cleanse me from guilt. This verse expresses another plea of pardon. Cleanse me with hyssop. Shows us the image of a leper seeking cleansing. And in that day of the lepers, they took a hyssop and it would be dipped in blood seven times and placed and sprinkled on the leper. And we can see this at the altar in Leviticus 14.6. Here David saw himself as a spiritual leper in need of divine cleansing. The removal of his sin would occur through the shed blood of the coming Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Hebrews 9.22. How thankful today that that's the only way that we can have our sins forgiven is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Only then would he be made whiter than snow, Isaiah 1.18. Make our sins white as snow. In verse 8 he says, cheer me with gladness. David's words, let me hear joy and gladness, would be the result of the forgiveness in his sight. And we see that in, in Psalms 32. Read Psalm 32, it tells about the forgiveness of David. He said, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. What's he talking about? It shows how crushed and how battered and how bruised he was by Nathan's indictment. When Nathan came and told him about his sin, it crushed him. His whole body ached. I believe every joint and every tendon and every ligament. I know a little bit about tendons. I just had one shredded and had surgery on my shoulder. And, and yeah, it aches, but I can't imagine. I believe every, every bone in his body hurt. It really did. It hurt to the point. And not only did his body ache and hurt, his mind. He was so despondent. He was depressed all the time. 
He was distressed. He couldn't hardly cope because of the guilt of his sin. What a heavy burden to carry for almost one year. Mm. Clear me of charges. I hope that there's none of us here that's ever had to carry that burden of sin for a year before we confess. It's a horrible thing. We all have from time to time, I'm sure. But brother or sister, if you're going through some kind of problem where you're dealing with sin, confess it immediately before God. Come before him. He'll have mercy. Verse 9, he says, clear me of charges. David asked God to hide his face from his sins, which were ever before him. In other words, he said, forgive me, God, so you will not look upon my sins any longer. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from him, from us. Psalm 103.12. Totally removed them. As far as the east is from the west. Every sin that we committed in the past, every sin that we commit today, every sin that we commit in the future has been covered by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Returning again to the accounting imagery, he prayed, blot out my iniquity. Blot it out. Take a ink blotter and just wipe it clean. And that's what Jesus did on the cross when he shed his blood and gave his life for you and for me. Only then could David be right with God. It reminds me of a little story. I remember with my, uh, my good buddy Gordon Rumble, who's pastor over at Big Valley, when, when his son Craig, who was my son Aaron's age, when he was a little boy, about five, they were out in the backyard playing th- football and they were just having a ball, you know, literally, and uh, <laughs> having a great time. And all of a sudden the phone rang, it's for, you know, cell phones. And uh, Heidi called him in, his wife, and he went in there. He's gone about five minutes. And he come back, and Craig was, wouldn't even look at him. You know, he, he was hiding from his dad. And Gordon couldn't figure out what's going on here. And so he said, uh, Craig, what's the matter? Well, he happened to look over along the side, and, and his wife Heidi had just planted some nice new flowers. And all these flowers was pulled out by the roots. <laughs> And just laid over. And so Gordon got him. He says, Craig, come here. And so he took him over there. He started crying. Oh, Dad, I'm so sorry. I don't know why I did this. And Gordon says, son, that's okay. I forgive you. And he said, (laughs) immediately he darted out, got the football, and, man, they were ready to play football again. Everything was fine. He was restored. Once we confess. We're not lost, but we're out of fellowship when we sin against God. And so that fellowship was broken. Then once it was restored, they were good to go again. 
That's the way it is in our lives. But he will remove our transgressions from us. And now number four, we see a commitment to holiness. And we see this in uh, 10 through 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. We see five things here in these verses. In verse A and B of verse 10, we see a pure heart he prays for and he prays for a steadfast spirit. Having confessed his sin before God and received God's forgiveness, David prayed for a pure heart so he would not fall back into sin again. Creating me a pure heart is something only God could do. Only God himself could renew his spirit with a right and steadfast spirit. Only God can do that. I can't change my heart. I can't change my spirit, but God can. We have to fall down before Him. If there's a problem in your life, you've got to fall down before God and ask Him to help you, to give you the Holy Spirit to guide you and to direct you. He can and will, will <clears throat> take care of that. Verse 11 He talks about an empowered life. David's own words, Do not cast me away from your presence, do not indicate that David feared he would lose his salvation. Rather, it was a plea that God would not remove his divine power from David's life. Then he asked God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. David feared being set aside in serving God. It would be a severe discipline that he deserved and would suffer if God did not accept his confession. But he actually pleaded with God. He wanted to continue in the service to God. That was his desire. He said, oh God, please, Give me your Holy Spirit and fill me again so I can go out and minister your word. That was David's desire. He wanted to be empowered by the Spirit of God, just like you and I. Once we confess, we want to be empowered so we can go out and share Christ. As we see here in verse 12, he prays for a joyful heart. David begged and pleaded with God to to restore him to the joy of his salvation. Joy of his salvation. And it cannot exist in the same heart at the same time. Sin and joy cannot exist together. The two are mutually exclusive. It's like blood or water and oil. We want to note that David did not request that his salvation be restored, but again, the joy of his salvation. The joy of his salvation. He wanted a willing or a free spirit, he said, so he could obey God's word and live in holiness, a submissive will. 
So yes, he desired to be submissive before God. And then it brings us to number five, a consecrated life. A consecrated life. Verse 13 through 17. He says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Here in verse 13, David says, I will teach others. Once David was forgiven, what did he want to do? He wanted to go out and tell others, didn't he? He wanted to teach transgressors your ways, he says. He would speak to them the truth that God would afflict them for their sin. There is consequences to their sin. But also he would include the full pardon that they would receive when they confess their sin to God. They would be completely forgiven, washed away and blotted out. As a result of this teaching, sinners would turn back to God by repenting and forsaking their own sins. That was his de desire. That was the, the, the joy that he had in his life after he confessed his sin. Confessed his sins was to teach others. Tell others about it. Show them the blackness of their sin. Another quote I found, it says, You have not got to the bottom of the blackness of sin until you see that it is a flat rebellion against God himself. We have to see sin as God sees it. That was by Alexander McLaren. Verses 14 and 15, he says, I will praise God. David prayed earnestly, Save me from blood guiltiness, O God. <laughs> Again, the enormity of his sin continued to burden David's heart. He knew that he deserved death. That was on his heart. He knew he deserved the death penalty for his sins. And this sobering reality caused him to speak of God's forgiveness each and every day of his life. Just as the Apostle Paul, when he persecuted the church of God, every day he knew he was forgiven, but he counted all those things as loss that he would gain Christ. It still was a burden on his heart. But once pardoned, David declared, My tongue will sing of your righteousness to others who needed to seek that same forgiveness. And I know, I think there's all of us, maybe there's certain sins that we found ourselves in. Now we've been able to go and tell others and to rejoice about what Jesus Christ can do in our lives. Maybe that's why God allows some of us to go through some areas in life as he does. He did this with David. In verses 16 and 17, he said, I will humble myself. Humility. 
David learned the lesson of humility. Pride's an awful thing. Pride. That was probably a good share of his problem. He'd got, he was king of Israel and he got a little bit too prideful. And when that happens, we're so prone to sin. And he said, I will humble myself. David understood that God did not desire only animal sacrifice, as he says, or burnt offerings from him for his sin. But what God desired was the sacrifices that required were a broken spirit and a contrite heart. A broken spirit, a shattered pride, if you will. And a contrite, a pure, open, soft heart. Humility before God and brokenness over sin are true expressions of genuine confession and repentance. And David knew it. I'm going to read that one more time. Humility before God and brokenness over sin are true expressions of genuine confession and repentance before God. And you and I, if we're going to please God, we have to be filled with humility. Humility. Humble yourself before God, and he'll lift you up. And finally, in 18 and 19, he says, Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifice and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then will bulls will be offered on your altar. Here we see a concern for God's glory in these two verses. Verse 18 says, may God's work prosper. David was aware of the close connection between his personal holiness as the king of Israel and the national blessings from God, which the people would enjoy. He realized that his character did count. Our character counts. The sins of leaders affect other people as well as themselves. Just a few weeks ago, we had an elders meeting, and Phil and Cameron and I, as we sat there in prayer, and we told each other, we admonished each other, how important it is that we live a holy and a pure life before our congregation here at RHC. It's imperative. We are held to a higher standard. God holds us high, and we feel it. I feel it, brother and sister. I, I don't know why. I don't know why God chose me to, to help shepherd the flock here, but he did. And it's my desire that I will allow myself to stay so in tune with the word and in prayer to God 
that I can live a life before you that is without rebuke. So pray for us. Pray for Pastor Phil. Pray for Cameron. And pray for myself in that area. We desire to be good shepherds. David failed there. He prayed, make Zion prosper by strengthening and protecting the walls of Jerusalem from foreign attack. Now that David had been renewed, he prayed that the nation of Israel would be renewed as well. It was his desire that there would be spiritual revival in his own heart and that in the nation as well. In verse 19, may God's pleasure be full. Only then, once David was forgiven completely, would David present righteous sacrifices to God with a right heart. Only then would whole burn offerings and bulls be offered to delight God. Only then could he do those sacrifices with a right spirit. Our heart must be right before God before our sacrifices can be right. Anything that we sacrifice before God, our hearts, our motives, has to be right. Whether it's maybe communion, baptism, our hearts have to be right. Our motives have to be pure. In these 19 verses, we see that David had a cry for forgiveness. A, call, a confession of sin, a call for cleansing, a commitment to holiness, a consecrated life, and a concern for God's glory. Now in conclu conclusion, many years ago there was a famous correspondence in the London Times under the subject, What is Wrong with the World Today? In this editorial, the writer researched and reported on the various moral and social ills that was plaguing the world. And the article called for an answer rhetorically from the readers. And the best letter that was mailed in to the editor was a reply from the distinguished G.K. Chesterton. And he wrote like this. He says, Dear Editor, what is wrong with the world today? He says, I am faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. Pretty simple. Unquestionably, the heart of the world's problems today is the sinfulness of man. We know that. We've sure read about it. But more than that, the source of each one of our problems is sin. Not only sin, but specifically my own sin. Each one of us must set a watch over our own life. Once sin is made known to our heart, we must confess it immediately as we learned. The good news of Jesus Christ is that forgiveness of sin is offered for all who believe on Him and repent of your sin and come to Him. We see in John 6, 37, He says, All that the Father gives to me, I will never cast out. All that the Father gives me will come to me, excuse me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. 
If there's anyone here this morning that does not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, we would plead with you, come. You might say, oh, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to do it. I don't know. Maybe I've lived too bad of a life. No. Jesus said, what did he just say? He says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. So if you come, he will not cast you out. So if you're here, come under the broken body and the shed blood at the cross. Jesus died and gave his life. And he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ, come and believe and you will be saved. In 1 John 1, 9, for those of us who maybe have sins in our own lives we want to confess, he says if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and to clear, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession and repentance are bound together in one. May all of us who are aware of our sin come to the one and only fountain that's filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Before prayer, I would like to ask four questions. And if you have any pens or, or possibly you can remember them, write it down. I'd like for you to take it home and maybe sometime during this week, look at these questions and ask them to yourself. Number one, do I have a proper view of myself and my sin nature? Do I have a proper view of myself and my sin nature? And number two, do I spend enough time confessing my sin to the Lord each day? Do I spend enough time confessing my sin to the Lord each day? Number three, when confessing my sin, do I identify the specific sins that I'm guilty of? When confessing my sin, do I identify the specific sins that I am guilty of? In verse 4, do I praise God after confessing my sins? Do I praise God after confessing my sins?